I'm Father Scott Vanderveer, and this is Profiles of Endurance. In this past year of pandemic, we have been hearing so much about the importance of maintaining good mental health, that we need to turn to self-care practices and social connections to make sure that we don't wind up losing the mental health that's so important and so needed when things in life are as chaotic as they have been this year. Today, we're speaking with Claudia Caslascola about a mental health crisis that she experienced in her life just after graduating college. And in this recounting, we want to let you know that she speaks very openly and honestly about the frightening thoughts that she experienced, her time in the psych ward of a hospital, and of some very frightening impulses that were part of her experience. Because of that, we do want to issue a warning for anyone who could be triggered by memories or recountings of mental health crisis. This is a very raw and honest episode, and we are so grateful that she shares so honestly and humbly about what this experience was like and about how it changed her views about life and how it challenged her relationship with God. We begin by asking Claudia about the very beginnings of her life in her family and about where her commitment to mental health started. I grew up with two loving parents. I am an only child, uh, so I don't have any siblings. But um, yeah, I grew up uh, in Boston, so in a metropolitan area. Um, and as far as mental health, I mean, it's something that I struggled with as a, from a very young age. Um, it was sort of present in my life um, since, I don't know, I think I was uh, six years old when I had my first significant panic attack. So it's something that I grew up around. Thankfully, my dad has had his own struggles with it and really could relate. So... Um, but it was a big part of my childhood and growing up too. So really shaped who I am. You have told me that you've been willing throughout your life to, uh, to put some time and some effort into your mental health. You, uh, had a, a family that was very forward thinking and wanted you to have all the tools you could possibly have. So you started, uh, experiencing therapy at a pretty young age. Is that right? six years old or a little bit younger than six when I started going to therapy. I don't know actually the exact reasons why my parents um, decided that that was a good option. I mean, I think that there were a lot of difficult things happening around me when I was a child. So my guess would be that it was to sort of understand, I mean, it, it, different kinds of therapy, they have different therapy for small children than, you know, for adults, it's more play-based. Um, but yeah, that was something that I was introduced to very early on, and I do credit my lifelong therapy experiences with um, a lot of the way that I see things and analyze things and just a lot of who I am, I think, has been about learning to be very verbal and uh, intuitive of myself at a young age. So Yeah, well, that, that investment is, is definitely paying off. I know that from our conversations. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's so it's so clear. I I would love to to turn our attention now to the period of of time in your life when um, mental health was especially a especially challenging thing to to try to maintain and balance because you went to college and then upon graduation you went through quite a uh, a challenging experience so take us back to the younger version of yourself about what life was like as you were graduating and getting ready to launch from college what were your plans for what you wanted to do next uh yeah so pre graduation i was really excited about finishing college i had had dreams of being in the film industry um which i did eventually end up doing but kind of in a different a different way than i had planned but uh leading up to my graduation i was taking the initiative i was working with i had reached out to people in the career center so i was working with them a little bit about what sort of things do i need to do in preparation uh, I was working on my resume, writing cover letters, reaching out to people, exploring the connections I had from being an alum or about to be, you know, the alumni network. Um, mm. And I, yeah, so that's something that I had spent months on. Uh, my plan was to move out to Los Angeles as soon as I was done with college. Um, and so I was trying to figure out before I graduated, okay, what can I do here and now to prepare myself? Because I knew that graduating was going to be really difficult. Mm. I knew ahead of time that it was going to be a extremely hard transition. And I also knew that I stayed home, uh, that the more, the longer I was at home, the worse things would be for me. I knew that my mental health was going to deteriorate being home after graduation. Mm. So I had the insight ahead of time knowing like, okay, I need to pursue this because if I just go home and I get stuck at home and I don't grow and move forward, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna like eat me alive. So I, that is what ended up happening anyway. But, um, yeah. So pre, before I graduated though, I had, I'd been meeting with someone at the career center. I'd reworked my resume several times. I'd reached out to a lot of people um, the issue with Cal living in California, Los Angeles, and also specifically film work is that you can't really apply to those types of jobs unless you're already there. Right. That was experience that I was applying and these people, as soon as they found out that I did not have a residential address in Los Angeles, were not interested in even considering me. Um, all of them would say, well, move here. And when you have when you can provide proof that you live here, we'll, we'll talk to you and we'll consider you. But until then you can't. And that's scary because you're talking about moving across the country without a job and somewhere where you're looking at paying astronomical prices for rent and then have to get a car. So it, it's a big risk. Terrifying. And Terrifying. So, uh, that was pre-graduation and yeah, after graduating, you know, my parents said, well, you have to come home anyway, because you have all this stuff at home, you have to sort things out, so come home first. I said, okay, but I don't want to linger too long, because if I'm there, I don't have a job, I'm going to get depressed. Um, you know, it's you go from having structure at school and independence and all of these friends, and then, like, all of that is kind of pulled out from under you. It's something I can completely relate to, and I, I know that a lot of our listeners can as well, that that 
very difficult transition from college to, for many of us, it's the first time that there hasn't been something programmatic for us to turn to. You know, for, for many of us, after we complete our senior year of high school, it's just inevitable. It's understood that we're going to go on to begin college. But when you're done with college, that open-endedness is very frightening. Right. So was your family, talk to us a little bit about what their, their view was. As an only child, you are, you are loved and appreciated by your parents. And you were talking about going to the other side of the continent from them. How did they, how did they respond to that? So I think it's worth noting that both of my parents were preoccupied with a lot of other things in their personal lives when I came home. Um, mm. I, part of it, part of the distress was I really wanted to be the center of their attention, uh, and I wasn't. And that's not to say that they didn't care about me or anything like that, but they just had a lot of other things. And mm. at the time, that was hard for me to uh, cope with. But so when I came home, I was, I wanted to do the work that I needed to do and get out there. I was really motivated and I was looking for my parents to be supportive to me. Uh, and they were not able to be supportive to me in the ways that I needed. I personally felt like they were not supportive. They would tell you and did say at the time, they were like, we are very supportive of you. So I think we just kind of didn't, have the same understanding of what support meant there. Um, despite my trying to tell them exactly what I needed, it was, it was complicated. Um, but they reacted differently to it. I, my mom, uh, didn't, you know, she would bring up a lot of things, a lot of concerns. So every time that I would talk about it with her, a lot of the focus was about like the negative aspects of it. Mm. I think that she felt like she was protecting me, um, saying that, you know, it was realistic, it was important to uh, consider all of those things. But I had felt like, and I had said to her, I said, if you're going to talk to me about these things, then you need to help me come up with solutions, not just give me reasons why I can't do things. Hmm. She didn't like that. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my, my dad was kind of the other side of the spectrum. He was like, yes do it. You definitely should do it. He kind of made these like crazy, like, I'll just give you all this money and you can go do it. And that's not what I was looking for. I wanted to just sit down and discuss things practically. I actually wasn't looking for anything financial. Hmm. I wanted to feel that they were behind me and that they could, um, I had my own doubts of myself. So I think I was looking to just have a little bit of like confidence and um helping me just to sit down and look through some of the practical things that I had been working on yeah so they didn't really want to do that they had their ways of of what they thought and it at the time really wasn't helpful uh what I needed was just that kind of confident voice and listening ears and it's just not um what I could get out of them so that definitely and like created a situation where I started getting depressed and anxious because I felt like I was very vocal about what I needed and I wasn't being heard. Mm. Um, so they also kept telling me to relax, <laughs> which I hated. There was a lot of like, you just graduated, take some time, you know, have some time at home, 
watch some TV, relax. And I didn't want to relax. I was motivated. I said, no, I want to get going. I want to do this. Um, so then there was this conversation of, okay, well, if you're going to go, wait until after your family vacation. Mm. Fine. Um, my grandmother had been sick, um, leading up to it. She'd been sick, you know, for the past couple of years, she had leukemia long-term and then there was some other cancer. Um, but she was really insistent that she wanted to go on this trip. Your mom's mom or your dad's mom? This is my mom's mother. Ah, so does this trip involve, um, every year the whole family or is it more like you and your mom with your grandmother? No, it's my whole family on my mom's side. Wow. Um, You know, they've been doing since before I was born, but it's, we go to this uh, little island. I say when I say to people that we rent out this private island for a week, it sounds uh, really bougie. <laughs> it is not. It's a great trip, and I feel very privileged to be able to do it. It is not glamorous. Mm. There is no hot running water, no electricity. Um you know, it's like, it's a little bit of roughing it, you know? Hmm. Where is, where is the island? It's in Maine. Beautiful. So this is not the kind of thing you do in the winter. This is a summer vacation. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Now we have to bring what we need with us onto the island because we're on this island. You know, we don't have Wi-Fi. We don't have cell phones. We don't have things. Well, we have cell phones, sorry, but there's not much reception. Um, You can only go by boat. There's no bridge. Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty rustic. That's that's an adventure. How often, yeah. how long do you stay when you go? Um, six days usually. Wow. And do you leave at all? Or is it you get there and you stay and never leave that island until it's time to go? Um, usually there are trips into town for certain things that we might need. But, it, you know, it's kind of a to-do to have to go do that. So Sure. Uh, yeah, but I'm setting the scene here because... Uh, when we got there, I don't know, three, four days into the trip, my grandmother died. Um, I'm so sorry. On the island, which it was actually like, it was, it's, it's complicated. I felt like after she died with the memorial and everything, people sort of came up and said, oh, she died in the place she loved most and surrounded by her loved ones. And I, um. You know how that's just, you know, you can't ask for better. And I'm thinking like, well, I saw it and it was not, it was not idyllic. You were Um, present, you were present for her passing. I, well, not exactly. I wasn't there the moment that she died. I was there, she was dying. It was clear she was not going to make it home once we got there. Um, cause she rapidly declined and so her health did. So mm. I watched that happen and I was with her in you know, the room prior to her dying. So it was pretty intense. Um, and I do think, I mean, you know, she wasn't her favorite place surrounded by her whole family. So that's true, but it was also a traumatic experience. It wasn't this, um, peaceful, wonderful no passage on to the afterlife. It wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. It was, it was upsetting. Yes. And I, I feel a little bit of a need to repent myself as you tell the story. 
I think a lot of us, those of us who are priests and in the helping profession, but also just all of us, so often we think that our job when we're talking to somebody who's going through grief is to somehow reframe it so they can feel better about it. And it's, it's, it's really not our job to do that. You know, it's up to the person to make the meaning out of the experience. We can simply just walk with them and, and let them know that they're not alone. And I, I know that's easier said than done, but I, I just recognize how many times I've wanted to make somebody feel better. And I realize it's probably in large measure because it's so uncomfortable for me to see them in pain. So I want to say something that could be what feels to me like a healing thing to say, but you're right. If, if that had been your experience, you certainly would have thought of it on your own. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it depends. Cause like my other relatives, I don't think were bothered by that, but I was, I, I mean, I was bothered by different things than they were. I had a very different response to the whole, everything happening than my relatives did. So, mm. um, I think that everybody there was like feeling they wanted to be with each other. And I just, for example, like I didn't want to be around anybody. Mm. Um, I didn't want to be trying to enjoy any part of the vacation at that point anymore. I was like, I want to go home. I don't be here. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just, Mm. my emotions privately. And so I didn't really have the opportunity to do that. I had to kind of make the best of the situation. I, went to the funeral so we had to figure out how to get the body off the island oh um and so i went to the funeral home to help with those you know the day of events and then when we got home we had to plan out all of the events associated with her memorial and then even after all of that happened and the grief and everything it was like then there was all this focus about my grandfather and okay, well, what are we going to do? Cause we can't leave him in the house that he's in by himself. So it's trying to like move him to assisted living. You know, it was a whole, Oh my, 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 that was a lot. So that was sort of where my mom's, I think a lot of her stress was at the time looking at that situation. Um, <laughs> so my desire to go to California wasn't, you know, front and center there. Um, my dad was in a relationship that was kind of intense for him, you know, going through changes for him. So the focus also wasn't a hundred percent on me and that and for him either. So I think for me, I'm like struggling with all of this stuff and feeling like I have to put all of the things that are important to me aside, um, which at the time just sort of fueled that anxiety. Mm. Cause so, I felt like I could take care of myself or do what I needed to do for myself. It feels to me like that is a particularly cruel part of our emotions at times is that uh, they can they can put us out of step with the very support network that we need. And it's oh, that's it's such a it's such a common story that um, what I needed emotionally, somebody might say I couldn't get. And the ways that people were trying to reach me were not the helpful ways. Yeah. It's painful. Wow. So what, what, as you, as you went through the, uh, the time that followed that vacation, what, what was going on inside of you? Uh, I was struggling. Uh, I was started feeling very depressed. I didn't have, um, it sort of felt like California was impossible to me. 
Uh, and I was just really unhappy. I was unhappy being home. I was fighting with my parents. I didn't have any friends around because all my college friends were elsewhere. All of my high school friends were no longer in the area. So I felt very isolated. Um, I was in communication with um, the college relationship, the person I'd been in a relationship with in college, which we talked about on my last guest spot on your podcast. That's but, right. Um, the, uh, listeners can turn to an earlier episode, which was about a relationship struggle, and that's available right. on, yep, wherever they found this podcast. But, um, you know, that was dysfunctional too, so that, that didn't really help. But uh, So I did... I ended up doing this sort of therapy program that was supposed to help. It wasn't really that helpful. It, I guess it helped a little bit because from there I got a job, but I hated my job. Mm. It was just like minimum wage. I was working in a movie theater, so it was pretty unpleasant. And you had this great, you graduated with honors not long before. Right. And were surrounded by your peers and your friends in college. And, you know, that, that is such a hard transition. Well, I was had a leadership role in the radio club, which was really important to me. Mm. Um, I had, you know, I had my own radio shows. I was doing like event planning. I was constantly surrounded by my friends, going on adventures all the time when I wasn't in school. I didn't answer to anybody. I didn't have to tell anybody where I was going, for how long, who with. I, you know, everything was my own choosing. If I wanted to go to McDonald's at three in the morning. <laughs> Nobody yeah. would do it. Pretty heady um, stuff. So when you go home after that and your friends aren't around and you don't have your clubs and you don't have your class and your activities and all of a sudden you're living with your parents, it's like, yeah, it was it was rough. So I was depressed. I had no desire to get out of bed. I was feeling just like a lack of interest in any activities whatsoever. At that point, I said, okay, I'm going to see a doctor for like an annual physical, I'm going to bring up this depression and see if I can get some sort of medication. Mm. Um, I'd been on medication for depression before. I asked for um, one of the medications that I had been on for seven years prior. So it is a medication that I had a lot of experience with. Mm. I asked the doctor to give me the smallest possible dose because, you know, I hadn't taken it in a while. Hmm. Uh, they said, okay, well, this is like, sounds like a safe thing to do. Um, so I went home, I took it, took the pill, went to sleep, and uh, had just a really severe adverse reaction unexpectedly to that medication. The medicine, the medicine, what was it? Did it begin while you were sleeping? Uh, not exactly. I don't know how much you want me to go into detail about this. Oh, well, as much as, as much as you think would be helpful for our listeners, I'll, I'll, I'll let you be the judge of that. It's extremely disturbing. Oh. Uh, I woke up at, I just like woke suddenly at five in the morning um, and there were thoughts and urges to do things that made no sense that were really scary. Uh. Did not feel like my own. Uh, I felt like I was possessed, basically. I felt like there was something inside of me that wanted to kill me. 
Oh, and how scary. Overpowering me. It was like one of the most terrifying things that's ever happened to me in my life. Oh my goodness. Who, what did you do? What, what do you do when you're, you, this is, this is early in the morning. It's, it's day one of this medicine, correct? Well, I didn't take it again after that. Gotcha. Yes. <laughs> yes. No. Nope. Uh, what did I do? Well, I, um, was at home with my dad. So he was awake at the time, fortunately. Um, and I called him into my room and I told him that I needed to go to the hospital um, because I didn't think that I was going to survive. And my parents didn't were both very adamant that they didn't want me going to a hospital. So they were like, we can handle this at home. Um, but you felt, you felt so unsafe. I thought I was going to die. It's so frightening. It's so, you know, one thing, um, this, this may be too unrelated to be helpful, but I feel that I, maybe it would be wise for me to share cause I'm feeling the urge to that, um, a, a dear friend of mine who suffers from terrible anxiety about heights told me, I thought, I misunderstood what his fear was. I thought that his fear was if he were on a bridge, that the bridge would collapse. Or, and in, instead, he told me he thought he would be overtaken by an involuntary urge to jump and he wouldn't be able to stop his muscles from doing it. Yeah. It's sim that's very similar. It's just kind of a, I think it's related to the kind of experience. I had that, but like on a uh, significantly larger scale and at home. Oh, so scary. So it must have been, you. understandably, your parents want to take the calmest approach as the first, the, the first defense, but you knew this, we cannot take a mild uh, response to this. This is serious. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, I felt like it was a, you know, you hear about this like mental health crisis, you know, if you've ever, um, if you've ever called, um, a therapist or like a doctor after, and when they're off hours or whatever, and you get their answering machine, right. The first thing that they say is like, if this is a crisis, you know, hang up and call 911. And right. I'm like, if ever was a crisis, this is the crisis. Yes. Um, but yeah, my parents didn't want to do that. They, my mom took her. I think it was my mom took the day off work and came over and spent the day with me and it kind of subsided after about an hour or two and I was like okay I guess it's over and I just had a panic attack and it was a bad reaction to the medication but you know I'll, I'll be okay and interestingly enough the following two days after that I was fine and I thought everything was back to normal and I was like okay I'm fine everything's fine and then I was home alone uh, a day after that and I had fallen asleep on the couch. I was like taking a nap and I woke up and had a similar experience, but this time I was by myself. Oh. So I said, okay, I have to get out of the house. I can't be in the house. Like I, and I was thinking like, I need to go to a hospital. Um, and my dad, I called my dad and he said, okay, walk to your mom's office. Cause it wasn't, it was about like mm, two to three miles away. Hmm. I said, okay, maybe less than that. Maybe it was like, yeah, maybe like two miles. But I would, he was like, just walk over there because I can't be with you right now. You know, go over there. I said, okay. Now, interestingly enough, my, on my walk to my mom's office, I walked through like the hospital area where all the hospitals were. Yes. And I wanted to go 
in as I walked by. Uh, um, oh, and he's like, don't go in a hospital. Do not go there. Don't do it. Like, put your mom's office. Um, so I went to, I finally got to my mom's office. She wasn't there, but one of her coworkers kind of sat with me there. And I was in a state of extreme distress and panic. That's the longest panic attack I've ever had because that one went on for seven and a half hours. You you walked the streets with that panic attack unrelenting. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, the whole way I thought I was going to like throw myself into traffic. Oh. You're going to want to put like a trigger warning or something on this episode. Yeah, it's well, it's true, isn't it? Because I don't, I don't want to upset people by talking about it too much. You know, I don't want it to disturb anybody because it's very upsetting. But you know, it's just like the reality of what I was experiencing at the time. Do you, you know what I feel? I feel like you're very wise. I think a trigger warning is incredibly wise for those who've had the experience. I have to say, it sounds to me like the people who have the potential to benefit so much from your sharing are those who maybe thought they understood what a mental health crisis was or thought they know someone in their family who's had panic attacks and they think they have an approximate idea of what it's like. But unless you are filled with awe and respect for someone surviving a panic attack, there's a good chance you don't know what it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Bodies are different. Obviously, there are people with panic attacks who don't experience this particular breed of it. You know, it's like a different, it's different for different people. Sure. This was just, and I have different kinds of panic attacks, but for whatever reason at the time, this is how this was manifesting for me. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you're being soothed at your mother's office by a colleague. I would say that soothed is kind of, (laughs) I was being, um, monitored a little bit yeah. what I'm sort of sedative uh which they were like well we can't give that to you unless you go to an emergency room which my parents had expressly said that they didn't want me to do um so what I ended up doing was I like took a bunch of melatonin tablets mm. I was like oh. I was like trying to calm myself down um but yeah so that was really difficult so that went on for days Days, um, Claudia, but, days. Uh, it wasn't, you know, lasting all day, every day, but it would, like, come on suddenly, and it would be really difficult. And I was also having um, what's called dissociation, um, which was tra- traumatic, too. So between those types of panic attacks, I was also having times where I felt it's, like, kind of an out-of-body type experience. Mm. Uh, so I've had these thoughts that, like, I don't know, everything around me wasn't real, um, that the people around me weren't real, that, it, you know, it was just a very isolating, I, I, for someone who doesn't, isn't familiar with like mental illness stuff, they would say that maybe that's like psychosis. It's not, it's a different thing. Ah. Um, dissociation is a, it's a, it's a very different experience. It's very common. Um, and then there are also multiple different kinds and I used to know all the names of them and now I don't, but um, it's like a hyper awareness of your existence. That's like kind of an out of body type thing. Wow. Um, it's extremely terrifying. Wow. I guess some people aren't as terrified by it, but I, I was really terrified by it. So I was dealing with that on a daily basis as well. Um, I had intrusive thoughts. I had just all sorts of, I mean, it was just like a storm of, Horrible things. 
it was like, I was just in a, I was like on edge, um, uneasy, terrified most of the time that I was conscious. Oh, wow. And I, I know there are listeners right now who are feeling some version of, oh my goodness, thank you for, thank you for letting me feel less alone. I've experienced this too. Well, it is very, you convince yourself, I feel like a lot of the time when you're in that, that no one knows anything about what you're experiencing. It is very easy to feel like you are the only person who experiences that. It feels like you're crazy. It feels like you're unhinged. There's something wrong with you. Understands this. So, I mean, that's all part of it. Yes. Um, but so at that point, they said, okay, we're going to put you in this thing called a partial day program, which is basically similar-ish to a hospitalization in a way. You go to a psychiatric hospital or a program for several hours throughout the day to like work on coping strategies and be among other people who are struggling with different things, but you don't sleep there. You can leave, things like that. So it, are you are you in any way um, feeling angry or are there any emotions about how interrupting this is to your plans? Or is that not what's going through your mind as you're going through this, this terrible experience? Are you thinking, well, how am I going to get to California now? Or did you wind up letting go of that very quickly? So yes, I felt that. Um, I was, ang- I was, I think I was really angry because this is going to sound so childish. Um, but at the time my feelings were, I just was angry and I felt like it was all my parents' fault uh. because I felt like if they had supported me when I needed their support, uh, that it would have never, this all would have never happened. Right. Because to me, it felt like, okay, I had a plan, not being able to go out and do the things that I needed to do and have the support of my parents was creating the distress, which I had had knowledge that would happen, which I made clear to everyone. I said, if I don't get out and do this, my mental health is going to tank. Nobody listened to me. I felt like it was just a lot of silence, a lot of not hearing me. Um... So that, I think it all snowballed. Um, so I guess my feelings of, of distress and the miscommunication with my family was the most upsetting thing about it, which drove the depression, which is the reason I asked for the medication at a certain point, because I just needed to cope with feeling like I was never going to get there. Yes. Um, and then that's what kind of put me into that situation. So oh, that's what... Avalanche. That so I went back to this partial day program. It was kind of helpful, but not really. And then on my last, they kind of sprung on me like, hey, this is your last day. You know, I didn't realize it was my last day. I didn't feel like I was ready to go back to being home alone for a while. Um, so I had a panic attack there. Oh, boy. Now, when you do an intake at one of these places well at least this one they gave me a sheet forms to fill out and one of the forms is like if you have distress while you're here check the boxes of the things you want us to do for you right and so one of the boxes i was like a blanket i want a blanket Mm. um ice cubes you know that was one of my things um 
So I had these things that I had checked off on the sheet that they had listed. So when the panic attack was happening, which by the way, I wasn't threatening to hurt anyone. I wasn't saying I was going to hurt myself. It wasn't anything like that. I was hyperventilating and I kept saying that I didn't feel safe and I was scared, but that, you know, I wasn't a threat. Right. 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 Having the panic attack and they're saying, you know, calm down. And I said, well, can I have the blanket? (laughs) And they were like, well, we don't have it. Oh. And I, someone get me some ice cubes, like, on my sheet, and they were like, no. So they didn't give me any of my coping things. Uh, they didn't give me even, like, ten minutes to compose myself. They just immediately called an ambulance. Um, wow. I do not they handled that situation well at all. <laughs> but that is what they did. And it's a respected program. Well... That's debatable. Debatable. Okay, fair enough. You know, I think Um, a lot of our listeners probably just assume that Boston being the center of healthcare and education that it is, that wherever you were was the very best, the Cadillac of treatment. No, 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 not this place. Um, They, again, I wasn't hospitalized. I was day program, so I was coming in as like an outpatient. I was doing programs during the day and then I left. Right. Um, I, you know, the program itself, it wasn't great, but it wasn't horrible. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was like so-so. Them as a psychiatric hospital, they had, they, they're, um, this network of hospitals is known around here because they're not great. Ah. So they're not like creme de la creme. Um, there's not, yeah, the hospitals for like medical care here are top of the line psychiatric care it's a little gotcha gotcha anyway i was sent to the emergency room the whole they handled the whole situation so badly um because they had told me that they had called and informed my parents when they hadn't actually done that so i had talked to my dad on the phone when I was in the ambulance or something and I was like, Hey, and I assumed that he knew because that's what they told me and he freaked out and then they took my phone. It was like a whole thing. Mm. But I, He meets me at the hospital. I'm in the emergency room because they put you in the emergency department first. Um, that's what happens. You don't just go to the psych hospital. You have to go through an emergency room. And then what they do, you don't get to choose which hospital you go to. They place you where there's an opening. Yeah. That's hard. Uh, That's hard. That that takes away so much predictability and comfort. You don't know where you're going to be. Well, you can end up in the worst hospital. You have no choice over where you go. And it could be far away, depending on your economic and, and, and situation. Sure. You could have a loved one who can't, doesn't have transportation to come see you wherever they assign you. Right. Ooh. So at this point, I didn't know if I was going to be an inpatient. What they told me was that they had to, you know, to sit tight and they were going to evaluate see if they needed, I needed meds or anything. Um, my parents were in the emergency, got there, they were with me, they were upset. My dad was really upset. Um, they came in, did like an assessment, and they said, you know, like, we're going to have you be an inpatient, we're going to send you to a psych hospital. My dad freaked out. <laughs> oh. He didn't want it to happen. My mom was like, all right, I guess this is going to happen. My dad was like, I don't want to let this happen. Listen, 
if the hospital tells you you're going, you're going. Yeah, th- it, <laughs> that's something. Yeah, tell, your parents can't do anything to Ooh. keep you from going. If they say you're gonna go, you're gonna go. Wow. You have the option when you sign a piece of paper to say whether you're doing it voluntarily or not voluntarily. Ah. Uh. Because they're just saying to you, like, you're going to go either way, so you can check which box you want. That is, there's not many things in a free country that feel that way, I would imagine. That's really, that's, you know, for someone who's broken no laws, who's having a health crisis, that's a very unusual circumstance to be in. I can make a lot of comparisons. I've never been in prison, but there are certain things about being on a psychiatric ward that I assume are similar to what I imagine prison is like. The uh, the coldness of the rooms strikes me. Is and that... the coldness of the showers. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, the, I couldn't get any hot water on the, on the showers, but I don't know. Anyway, um, that's a separate thing. Oh, but... that's a miserable, that's a miserable detail, though. I mean, you're already depressed and, and feeling so miserable, and there's just no comfort to be found. Oh, well, no. Well, so, you know, when you're going into any sort of psychiatric thing in a hospital, even the emergency department, they take everything from you. Uh, I mean, you with, like, pretty much nothing. And they take everything. My phone was dying. I wanted to charge my phone. They said, you can't charge your phone in here. We're not going to let you anywhere near a phone charger. So uh, they had to take my phone out and plug it in outside. You know, it was like a whole thing. But yeah, they take everything, all your clothes, all of your uh, belongings. You're not allowed to have pretty much anything. So at the time, they told me I was going to go to a psychiatric unit. I was scared because the only knowledge I had of it was from movies, which doesn't paint a great picture of what mm. it's... Um, I was scared out of my mind. I called the person I was, you know, the guy... Um, who's really unsupportive and really, really crappy about the whole thing. Oh. Um, so that was like an additional heartbreak. I was just crying. I was miserable. So I was in the emergency room for a day and a half until I was able to be placed in a hospital. I ended up staying at the hospital that I was at because they had a psychiatric floor, so they sent me up there. Um... I met with somebody briefly who was supposed to like come up with a treatment plan for me or something. Um, <clears throat> I was assigned a roommate and then I had six days of hanging out in a locked unit uh, with a bunch of people who were suffering from various different illnesses. <laughs> oh my. So it was interesting to say the least. Oh my. I I can't. There's no there's no other experience to compare that to. That is that is a unique, unparalleled experience. I'm glad I had it. Wow. Same. I more. have anger about a lot of aspects about it, but I am glad to say that it happened to me because it was such an interesting experience. What I you know that is a powerful lens to look through. That this is such an interesting experience. What what do you think you learned? Oh, it was just fascinating. I wish that, see, I wanted to keep a journal at the time, but I was having so much anxiety I couldn't do it. But I wish I had because there were so many interesting things going on there. I'm a person who's interested in people and the way that people work. I had mm. my theology, things like that. So, 
being able to see people of all different all different types of people, and it's very interesting observation-wise what you get to see. Were any of the people that you were sharing that that ward with um, feeling scary to you, like they were you were in danger when you were near them? Uh, yeah, <laughs> some of them. Um, yeah, there were all sorts of really fascinating people. There was a guy who was obsessed with me. Really? Yeah. In a romantic way? Mm-hmm. Oh, dear. Um, you were, you were 20, 22, 23 at the time? 22, yeah. So, um, you're a very, very, uh, formative young adult. Uh, was yep. this, was this person, uh, around the same age? No, he was late forties, early fifties. What did you do about that? <laughs> I didn't do anything. Um, I felt bad about, but he was a, and again, super interesting, eccentric person. He told me, um, that he had like come over and talked to me and he told me that I was, um, a beautiful woman and he said, you know, I've picked you. I want you to have my next child. Oh my. I <laughs> Now there's, there's pickup lines and then there's pickup lines. And I was like, uh, what? <laughs> he, said, wow. well, he said, I have three children, but the government, the state took them all away and I'm going to get them back, but I need to have another one. And I want you to carry my child and uh, you know, all this stuff. And I, my parents and I laugh about this a lot because I'm just sort of sitting there and I'm like, okay. <laughs> oh my, I mean, and you're in such a fragile state. It's no, like, do it, but you know, like just kind of like, uh-huh. <laughs> oh my, my, my. But he started writing me poetry. He was serenading me. He'd follow me around. Um, but the nurses like pumped him up with a lot of drugs. So how clear headed were you at that time? You were able to notice things. You were able, I mean, you were, you recall these things. So your medicine, your medication level was not such that you were um, I wasn't unconscious. At that point. So the reason, the reason really that they hospitalized me was because they wanted to get me on some sort of medication. And I was terrified of taking medications after the adverse reaction. Ah. That was part of the reason I was in the hospital because they wanted to keep an eye on me to see how I would respond. So that was fine. Um, but I wasn't on any sort of the medications that I was on didn't like fog my brain at all. They yes. didn't really, I didn't have any significant side effects of them whatsoever. I was the most functional person on the unit at that time. Uh, I definitely did feel out of place. I kind of wish that I could be able to be there and not have any problems just for the sake of observation. Yes. I couldn't really enjoy the, enjoy is not the right word, but I couldn't, for me, it, I guess, I don't, I, I couldn't um, take in the experience as much as I would have liked to because I was suffering with my own panic attacks. Yes. But such a, a um, crazy, my, not crazy, sorry, that's such a poor choice of words, mind-blowing environment to be thrust in. There it is. You know, I think our I think our listeners are with you. I, I know I am that um, enjoy in the sense that this is a very rich, very rare experience. You could actually feel like it was a privilege to have had. It is like a privilege because you don't see people like this. This is you don't on. The, I mean, you 
kind of do sometimes, but it's a totally different scenario when you're on a locked floor full of people who have all sorts of different perceptions of reality. Yes. And I don't, it wasn't, I wasn't judging them, but I was curious about how they were seeing things. Yes. So it was just a, a really interesting exposure to things that I had never seen or heard. And again, I wasn't, there was no judgment cast on these people. It was fascination. Yes. Um, but it wasn't pleasant being there. You know, I was eating hospital food every day. You couldn't go outside. You didn't have really windows to look out of. It, that part of it, I hated. Yes. And you oh. can't use the floor, so you're stuck in a hallway and in a room, and there's not really much you can do. Your clothing was designed to be harmless. I got to wear some of my own clothes. Oh, good. I couldn't have anything. There was, like, a special closet where you could have some of your belongings. Um... But you really weren't allowed to have much in the way of things. And there weren't visits? No, my parents visited. They did. Uh, they did, yeah. No, you can visit, like, hospitals most of the time. Wow. wow. The program actually let me have my phone for two hours a day every day. Wow. That may not seem like a big deal, but when you're in there, it's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A connection to the outside world. Did you feel that you were coming back to yourself while you were there? A little bit. You know what? I did a lot of Sudoku puzzles. Ah, interesting. I did that constantly. And then people, the other people, like the nurses, were really surprised because they couldn't do them. And I was trying to teach people how to do them. Wow. I made really smart. And at the time, that's something that I really clung to. Hmm. That, like, my brain was really powerful in that way and that I was smart and that I was going to find a way to, like, overcome things. Um, amazing. That's an amazing... Yes. That, that was what I needed for myself. So I got out of the hospital. And um, after that, what I had to do was go... Then my next step was to go back to, like, a, another partial day program because they have you do that so that you can transition back into your life um i went to a different one this time and the one i went to after that was much better Ah. for me uh but then you know i had to do all these things that were supposed to help me move past a lot of it to like rehabilitate from that situation Mm. and i hated that i didn't want to do any of it Mm. I, i was like i have to do it but I didn't want to do it. But I was like, no, 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 I have to. I have to I have to follow the steps and whatever and take the responsibility and do what I have to do until I feel better. Was there a part of you that was afraid to be out of the hospital? Probably. Well, no. I guess I wanted to come home because there was a lot that I missed about being home. But there was a part of me that was scared to be healthy again because I didn't feel like I could handle things myself so in that way yes but I didn't really I liked you know what I liked about being in the hospital I was away from my parents Ah. I had a little bit of independence again you know and I liked that and I liked that I was talking to therapists who actually listened to me when I was talking and I there wasn't that conflict there yes yes I, I liked the break from my family but I um yeah, when I got out, I did the stuff that I had to do. I did the partial day program. I joined this group called the DBT group. I did that for a while. And I went back to work. 
Um, it was around that time that the guy, the relationship guy who I was still talking to against my better judgment, he just completely vanished out of nowhere. So I, uh, and then my mom took me on a trip to Ireland. You traveled out of the country when you were newly recovering. Yeah. Wow. Were you, were you confident that that would be a good idea or were you nervous? I think every, my mom was nervous. I was nervous, but she thought I needed it. Wow. Uh, I felt like I was still suffering a lot in different ways, different than how I'd been before, but it was hard for me to like enjoy the trip, I think, to the fullest. Because mm. I had a lot of struggling. And she knew, you know, we talked about it, but I do, I love Ireland, so it was a great, still a great trip. Mm. Um, and then I came back and uh, I met somebody. Um, who I feel like meeting him was a real turning point for my mental health. You met somebody wonderful when you were just back from Ireland. So you were, how long, can you estimate how long were you out of the hospital by this time? Okay. So my hospitalization was the first week of January. And then I did the, I think that I did the partial day program for the remainder of January. And then February, I went back to the movie theater job. So I was working and doing the DBT group. I went on the trip to Ireland in April. So it wasn't immediately after my hospitalization, but it was, you know, I was still suffering with things. I was still struggling. And then I met my partner in May, the very beginning of May. Wow. And it was, it was so healing to, to be able to enter into a, a new relationship. Well, it was. Um, so I had uh, my really, I should also say I had a very close friend. Well, I have a very close friend. She's still very much my close friend. She was visiting me a lot. She was coming to visit me a lot after that. She was there for me. She's like one of the most important people in my life. Um, wow. And she was with me the night that I met this person. Um, yeah, Cause we went out dancing and I met him at a bar and I just really liked him, and so he and I started going out. But I think that, like, dating him, I was not forthcoming about the mental health stuff at all. Yeah, I was curious about that. When? Oh, I didn't want to tell him. Yeah. By the way, I was in a psych hospital a couple weeks. You know, no, no. Because he was really, first of all, I had done various dating since graduating college. Not while I was in the hospital, but, you know. Leading up to that, and I had gone on some dates, and let me tell you, dating was bleak. Oh, <laughs> like dating. so when I met him, and I said, "Okay, he's single, he's super attractive, and I don't see anything wrong with him that's obvious," I I was like, "I need to score this one, you know, lock it down." So <laughs> I didn't want him to know. <laughs> I didn't want him to have any doubts about me. But I think that that was really important for my healing, actually having to hide it. And I know that doesn't make any sense, but when I went to spend time with him, I didn't, it wasn't that I was going to never tell him, but I didn't want to tell him right as I was meeting him. Uh, it makes perfect I sense. It makes I want to get to know me first. Uh, and so, but because of that, anytime that I was with him or went to his house or anything like that, in my body, there was like 
enough that I it suppressed the intrusive thoughts and the anxiety enough that I wasn't showing it. Yeah. And that made him a safe space for me. Interestingly enough, during that time, I wanted to be with him because I wasn't having those types of things happen when I was around him because I was just suppressing it so much. Yes. But he also got me away from my parents. <laughs> um, so it gave me a feeling of independence, right? Because I could go out, I could be with him, I could stay at his house, we could do stuff together. That wasn't something that, you know, I was out of the house. And so it gave me my own thing to do. Um, and then I got a new job after that that was a good job. So I had a good job. I was enjoying spending time with him. So that's when I really started to feel a lot better. Was there, when you're recovering in that way, was there a day that you said, oh, I think I'm better? Is so it, it always kind of happens like that because when, for me anyway, sorry, I, I can't speak to anybody else. But from my experiences, it's usually really feels really bleak. And then all of a sudden one day, things will I'll feel good. And I'll be like, hey, wait a minute. I feel okay today. This is good, you know? Um, I can't remember a specific day, but I remember starting to feel like I was going out with him and I said, Hey, I'm significantly less distressed. Oh, wow. So I started to feel like way more myself again. I was, I was happier and I start, you know, I, everybody could see that, that I was more normal, but you know, the whole thing from my acute adverse medication reaction to feeling that way, that was six months. Six month experience. Oh my. Which when you're suffering with mental health stuff to the degree that I was, that's a really long time. That's endless. No, really, really and truly. That is, and I think so many of our listeners are going to get that. And I, you know, and I think they're going to get it in a big way, either because it reminds them of something from their own life or they love someone who can relate to what you're saying and they are understanding them in a deeper way because of what you're sharing. Oh, wow. I really I would like to say, cause this just kind of popped into my head, but when I did the partial day programs, there were a lot of people in these support groups who were talking about stuff and saying that they had distress or things like what I was talking about, that they had been going on one, two or three years of experiencing. Oh. And saying to me, like, oh, you think it's going to go away, but it doesn't. And at the time, that was really, truly terrifying because you don't know. You're like, is you don't know when it's going to go away. And there are people out there who are like, it may never go away. And that's the most terrifying thing you can think of. So I had to just try to say, okay, well, I think it's going to go away and I'm going to hold out hope that will. Oh, now there, there's an example of one of the best case in points of hope I've ever heard, you know, like, oh my gosh, you have to hope that you can imagine a day when you will not be fighting this battle. That's wow. What has, how has it changed your relationship with life to know that, that this kind of a thing can happen? What kind of new, does it, does it change your relationship with existence to know that there's people going through this, that you yourself have gone through it? Does it bring up questions about our, our life and our existence that you didn't have before? Um, I don't know that I can answer that because I feel like I need to think about it more. Um, yeah. 
really formulate an answer. I think that the whole situation was really unfortunate, and I would have rather it not have happened. That being said, though, I think that it was re- I gained interesting insights having the hospitalization, seeing what that is like from the inside. Mm. Fascinating. I think that I've had to do an enormous amount of work in trying to rebuild my feelings of, you know, normalcy after that. Um, and, you know, I've just done a lot of therapy, which, you know, you are growing all the time, even if you don't realize it as it's happening. Yes. Like that. So I'm just always working on myself, always trying to be the best version of myself, doing what I can to make things better. I don't shy away from confronting unpleasant things or putting in the work now if it means that things will be better for um, I'm enormously thankful for my close friends and my family and, you know, my boyfriend who, whatever other relationship problems we have, him being there for me, whether he was aware of it or not, was really helpful. Uh. So... I'm thankful for those things. And then, by the way, kind of circling back to the beginning of this story, um, I have worked film production jobs locally in Boston mm. and within recently. Uh, and I can tell you that having done that recently, I'm glad that I was at home for that because the work is so extremely intense in terms of hours. Mm. Yeah. I, while I was working that job, needed help taking care of myself and not, you know, not like basic care needs, but, um, you know, my parents were having to cook meals for me because I just didn't have any time. Yeah. And if there was somebody cooking for me when I got home, <laughs> I wouldn't have eaten because there was just no time and no energy. Yes. So yes. I'm glad that I had that experience at home around my family who could help me do what I wanted to do rather than being alone on the other side of the country having to figure it out. Absolutely. Isn't it amazing how they say that we, uh, we, our life is like rowing in a rowboat. We sit facing backwards. So we row forwards, but we face backwards. So we don't understand the, the terrain of what we're seeing until we've already passed it. And I just find that to be so true. That's a Soren Kierkegaard image. And I think it's just so true we uh we we row into a, uh, a a scene that we're not able to see, and only hindsight provides us with the information about it. It's amazing. Tell me this: what this sounds like one of those really um, an experience that brings about a great amount of maturity, maturation. It's it sounds like it's a really formative experience. Can you put into any words what you used to believe, you know, about life and, and God and, and, and how that changed if it did at all? Did it change? I mean, you went through so much in that, in that the vacation, you, you graduate from college, then you go on the family vacation and um, you lose your grandmother shockingly. You then go through a very depressing fall and and then you have this incredibly difficult episode brought on by this this medication uh interaction and 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 you go to the hospital what did the claudia that i knew when she was a college student 
believe about God, that that the Claudia after an experience like this sees differently? Well, it wasn't good. <laughs> yeah. T- I would yeah. like I would like to say that the experience um, helped me, you know, to feel the power and comfort of God, but it was really the opposite. I felt completely abandoned. Yeah. Yes. Um, it has it really, really changed my, because I was feeling very in touch with my faith. And then when that happened, when I woke up and I had the adverse, uh, side effects, I actually at one point got on the floor. I was like on the floor, like praying desperately, just begging for help. And I was so, because I was just so scared and I really didn't, you know, didn't want to die. That was my feeling. And I was um, praying and praying and praying. And that was the first time that I'd ever prayed. Mm. I felt like there was nobody there. Yeah. The first time that I've ever prayed and felt completely alone. I mean, I felt like nobody was listening to me. I did not feel any presence whatsoever. I felt completely abandoned. That, I would imagine, made it infinitely worse i was very distressed um and everything that sort of happened the days after i did i felt i felt like i had just been left alone um i couldn't understand why and i still don't understand why that happened or what was going on with that but it's complicated my feelings about faith or i didn't really want to go to church after that um which my family doesn't go to church, but, you know, I'd gone occasionally with my friend who's very avid churchgoer, and I didn't want to go after that. I said, I don't, I need space, and I didn't know what I believed or what I felt, and I still don't, to be honest, but I go through periods where I say a lot of prayers, and I'm in one now, but I still don't really know and understand. That strikes me as so honest and vulnerable. I mean... I don't know if it's what you want to hear. No. Well, I've got to say this. How about we say it this way? Um, Nothing makes you feel stranger than having someone describe God with confidence in a way that sounds foreign to you. And it is much more comfortable to sit with someone who says, I had a very... I had a very hard experience that took away what I thought I knew about God. And now I'm, I'm mulling over what comes next. Because I do think that it is more humble and true to admit what we don't know about God than what we do know. I think that's really humble and, and true. And in, in theology, they say that there's a, uh, they say there's two roots to God. One of them is the via negativa. The other one's the via positiva. And the, the via negativa is getting to God by figuring out what God is not. And being stripped of our earlier conceptions of God. The via positiva is when we come pretty empty, pretty blank canvas-like. And then the the painting gets, gets created in front of us. But it strikes me that right, you you were you were raised without church going being part of your life, but but were introduced to to church going in college, but also had always had this kind of openness to God. And then that was, that, that understanding that you'd had was stripped from you. And it it was stripped from you. 
And I just take, I take comfort in knowing that the greats and the, and the mystics have told us that the via negativa is just as valid a way as the via positiva. It's just often, like you're describing, not as fun. Yeah. What do you what do you dare to hope these days? You said you're in a phase of praying. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really know what drives that. It's just there sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it's not. I mean, I have a lot of things to pray for. I mean, a lot most of my prayers though are not me asking for things necessarily. It's more expressing gratitude for what I have because I feel really lucky to have the things that I have and I don't feel like I don't know a lot of it I don't take for granted so yeah I being thankful for the things that I'm fortunate enough to have in my life yeah yeah oh that's I I am I am just so grateful for your honesty about that because there are there are so many people out there who can relate to the exact position that you're in and others can relate to the position that you were in a few years ago um and, and I, I think, yeah, we have to, faith involves courage. And so I think all of us who are listening need to be brave enough to hear someone tell us, um, I've, I've lost God at times and, and I, and I don't know where God is all the time. We, we spoke with, uh, Gina Donovan, a woman who said in her interview on this podcast that on the day her husband died, suddenly she felt like she lost God too. And has had to try to find God again in her life. And so these, this kind of sharing is infinitely valuable to so many of us. So it I've is, heard a lot, by the way, that people have that when people die. Yeah, you've heard, you've heard of that experience? I've heard of a lot of people losing faith or having a lot of anger. Yes. Uh, faith because of losing people so I haven't personally had that experience thankfully and I hope never to but how do you stay open about this topic and about all things what is your key you you strike me as a very open person so open that um when you're in the the psychiatric unit of the hospital you are you're open to being grateful for the experience you uh when you feel like God has completely abandoned you, you're open to still hoping that there could be a relationship with God. What keeps you open? Uh, I don't know other than like, why not be? Ah. I don't know. <laughs> if, it's, if things can get better, I want them to get better. So. Yes. Yeah, why not be open to that? You know, I guess it's the same way for relationships with people. Even people that I have had very negative feelings towards or negative relationships with, if they come back to me and they express kindness towards me, I mean, some people agree with this, but I, I'm like, I accept that. I, I'm always open to the possibility of good things. Ah, I love it. I love it. I love and I'm and I'm grateful to know that at times that openness has has borne fruit like when you wondered will this veil that's been been dropped over me ever lift? Will I ever not have these thoughts and feelings again? And we're grateful to say those 6 months were the longest 6 months imaginable, but you've you've found your way. 
you found your way. Wow. Well, we're we're coming near the end of our time, so I'd like to just invite our listeners to um, really take a moment to savor this. I really am so grateful for what you shared, and let's just take a moment for those who are listening, not to lose it. You know, the the wisdom of neuroscience tells us that if you really want to retain something that you've treasured or that has been a new insight. You need to hold on to it for 15 seconds so that it doesn't just slip off of your brain like Teflon. So I think it would be wise of us to consider who came to mind for you when you were hearing this story that Claudia so generously shared with us? Who out there in your life or in your circle is someone who's been plagued with some sort of struggle like this, how can you show them love and openness and compassion? How can we be more agents of kindness to people who are struggling with internal pain that we may not be able to understand much at all? When you heard her say that Sudoku helped her to be proud of her big and powerful brain and trust that she would find a way out of this, what are you grateful for in your life, even in the darkest moments? What is something that you have been endowed with that you're so grateful that you have? Your emotional life, your, your mental ability, your, your spiritual openness. You heard that Claudia at one point was asked about how her relationship with life has changed. And rather than answer, she said, I'd like to do more thinking about that. I don't want to answer lightly. What are some things that you'd like to do more thinking about after hearing this interview? What is something that people are very quick to answer that needs some some respectful distance. Maybe it's not rushing too soon to answer what the meaning of life is. Maybe it's being willing to admit that the times of doubt in God can be just as nutritious and revealing as our times of knowing and trusting that God is there and has our back. Who might you want to share this interview with? Who is someone that maybe needs to have this forwarded to them. And maybe you'd be willing to let them know that it does have a trigger warning and that you'd be willing to talk with them about it afterwards. Claudia, on behalf of everyone listening, I want to thank you for your generosity and for your openness and for your incredible humility. You have helped us so, so much. And I thank you for taking this time with us. Yeah, I hope, I, you know, I hope that I didn't upset anyone because um, I know that the subject matter is incredibly upsetting. I guess the thing to take away from it is, you know, I'm doing okay. It's something that I did recover from. You know, it's something that I live with, but it's I, I manage. Um, you know, if I could say something or like have a message from the experience, it would be to do the work um, for yourself. If you are struggling with mental health and even if it's not that, even if it's just other things, if there are things going on, 
therapy is such an incredible resource if you are open to it and can do that and just to work on yourself it it just improves your quality of life and and it makes the world a better place if all of us are are doing our work and showing up and and then relating to one another with more consciousness and kindness what a world what a world Claudia, I don't think you could you could offer us more wisdom than that. Thank you so much. Thank you for this time. And thank you to all of our listeners for, for listening in. If you'd like to hear more from Claudia, we invite you to take a look at our uh, list of podcast episodes so that you can listen to her talk about how she made her way through a very abusive relationship during her college years. And listen to all of our survivors who have found their way through the most challenging times by listening to the other episodes of Profiles of Endurance. Until next time, may God bless you all.